As we begin today, we are entering into that season on the Christian calendar called Lent. And I was reminded in our most recent freeze a few weeks ago as this meme was recirculating of uh, King Arthur Pendergrun from Shrek. Schools closed, events canceled, my job. Some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. (laughs) And when we think about Lent, we often think about what are we giving up, and often we focus on things like food or drink or media, whether that's social media or other forms of entertainment as we question our relationship to. But I laughed at this because it was a reminder that often when we think of empire, there is an indifference to the lives of actual people. It is always willing to sacrifice us. Uh, And so perhaps through this season of Lent, we will glimpse a God who is sacrificing sacrifice, unwilling that any of us should perish, but wanting to welcome all of us to God's beloved community. So what does it say about our spiritual imaginations that Lenten fast often center our relationships to food and drink and media, but less often on our relationship to power? As we begin Lent, I want us to look at our lectionary passage through this lens of both power and empire. And so our text begins, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. Wilderness in the Hebrew imagination was this area of traveling from liberation, particularly in the Hebrew imagination, the liberation from ancient Egyptian slavery, but this in-between space from that form of liberation into entering into a more settled existence in what is sometimes coined the promised land. It would later be associated with exile when the Hebrew people were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and felt like they had gone off back into the wilderness, away from their settled, secure, abundant prosperity. This is often what wilderness connotes for the people who would have been hearing this text and telling this story. It's an area without sustaining resources such as water, bread, and meat. Walter Brueggemann calls it a space of acute risk and deep jeopardy. Jesus is led by the Spirit into this liminal space immediately after John has baptized Jesus and God has proclaimed over Jesus, you are my beloved in whom I delight. Empire entices us where love liberates us. The first way I want to see that in this passage is around enacting purpose. Does this relationship and identity of Jesus as God's beloved son in whom God delights allow special privileges he can exploit to his own advantage, right? What are the perks that come with being the son of God? And is this one of those that can be exploited? Some have suggested that the first 
two temptations for Jesus to one-up Rome are by becoming sort of an image of this bread and circus that Rome would do often as this conquering occupier to pacify its citizens, right? If we can just keep them satiated and entertained, then they will not be any type of revolution or rebellion. And perhaps in the first two temptations where Jesus has said, hey, you could have unlimited bread and then we'll be taken later to the temple and said, at the center of your religious community, you could do something miraculous, something spellbinding, give them a little razzle-dazzle, that perhaps this is meant to be an allusion to. You, you can do Rome, but you can do it even better than empire is currently doing it. What would an empire, Jesus, look like with you at the helm? Audre Lorde has reminded us the tools of the master will never dismantle the master's house. It's also possible that in this lonely and isolated place, because though perhaps that is what is intended with this rocks to bread sort of thing, we have to acknowledge the wilderness is not a place where a ton of people are hanging out. This is not exactly Times Square. And so perhaps the tempter is enticing Jesus in this isolated place saying, no one else is here. No one else has to know. You want to be king? This is how kings wield power. Sure, they help others, but they also enjoy the benefits of what it means to be a king. Will we take shady shortcuts when we are trying to enact our purpose or will we realize that we need just means as well as just ends? Eugene Peterson in his book, The Jesus Way, says, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if you have the Jesus truth, it must be lived out in the Jesus way or it will not produce the Jesus life. And we have all experienced religion that has divorced the Jesus truth from the Jesus way. People that were so certain of their understanding, their picture of God, their interpretation of scripture, and wielded that in ways that seemed to produce anything but the love and life and character of Jesus within them or towards the people that they interacted with. It is not good only to have a just end, but we must pursue it by just means. Passage goes on to say in verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of man, son of God, become and these stones to become loaves of bread. The identity just cemented in Jesus' baptism as God's beloved son comes under fire in these testing as we seek to live out our baptismal identities in the world. We too, it is likely Matthew is suggesting, can expect our identity to come under some testing, some pressure? What will it mean for each of us, both individually and collectively, to try to live out our baptismal identities? Where are the places individually and collectively where we are tempted to compromise, where we become apathetic, where we are perhaps too sure of ourselves? Where are those places? No sooner are we named than that name calling 
begins, right? And sometimes that might be from other people and other sources, people saying, oh, Christians wouldn't really do that. Uh, Christians can't believe that. Don't you know for thousands of years the church has spoken in one uniform voice about this or about that, not seeing the way that the church has too oftentimes been colluded with empire and power and patriarchy and domination. We are called things that can be incredibly harmful by other people, certainly, But I know at least my own experience is often that I don't need other people to call me names. I do very fine on my own. Thank you. And we also know the ways that we berate ourselves rather than our loving to ourselves. I don't think it here in this temptation is that there's any evil in wanting to feed people, uh, wanting to fill starving stomachs, whether that's Jesus or someone else's. It's no sin for Jesus to reorder rocks into bread. So what is at stake here? What is the appropriate way for God's son to live out his identity? What is the appropriate way for us to live out our identity? In season two of HBO's The White Lotus, we encounter Ethan and his wife Harper, and they're on vacation Uh, with Cameron and his wife Daphne and early in this is I don't think much of a spoiler if you haven't gotten to season two uh, we've learned already about Ethan that it seems like he is a little bit newer to coming into wealth he's had some more recent success whereas his friend Cameron seems to have been more established in wealth for a long time and early in this the season they're having this conversation where Cameron says to Ethan everyone cheats E And he says, no, they don't. And Cameron says, come on. And then Ethan, in this way that seems to perhaps betray some of his naivete, but that is then sort of wearing off, says, they do? Which indicates for him for the first time that he is being indoctrinated or invited to imagine, hey, maybe before you encountered all this money and power. Sure, you can be like all the other people who are trying to be faithful to the person they've committed to be faithful to, but you surely know that now that you've come to this new level of success and power, you're entitled to some things. Everyone expects this of you. This is the way powerful people make it through the world. And we are left to wonder then for the rest of the season how Ethan is going to interact with this idea, this testing that has been offered to him around how are you going to live out your identity in this new sphere? The text goes on. That is the gospel text, though the HBO season continues to. (laughs) Verse four, he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does not respond in some disembodied way. There's no pious talk that Jesus is some ethereal spirit saying, I don't need any bread because I commune with the entire universe. Uh, There is a time and a place to enjoy food, to relish in our bodies. Uh, There's a time where we can enjoy our embodied existence. Rather, the operative thing seems to be that we do not live by bread alone. 
right? We, we should never make any of our desires, any of our passions, the ruling thing. We are in conversation with them. We are appreciating them. We are acknowledging them. We are indeed even working to make sure that in appropriate ways that they can be met, but we are also not seeking to be mastered by them. Instead, there is this conversation that says, well, what is there that unites us? What is there that transcends us and yet connects us? Isn't there these words that come out of the mouth of God? And that is the thing that we are to attend to, even as we wrestle with our passions, our desires, our sense of purpose. Jesus, in fact, will even teach his followers to pray that God would give us this day our daily bread. But before that, to fix our eyes to our loving creator who is trying to bridge heaven and earth so that Heaven, this place that we long for, doesn't just stay in some afterlife future, but it is expansive, and we are invited to partner with how it is inbreaking into our world. Uh, as our pastor's search committee got together and was trying to write a description for you know, who we are as a community and where we're at, um, we, we penned these words that talked specifically around families, but I think it captures a bit of what at least I sense and I think what our search committee senses is, is where we are as a community at Vox. It says, like many families with children navigating faith formation, we carry our own experiences of both beautiful belonging and constraining conformity, safe spaces to explore and places of pain and trauma, mentors who companioned us well and leaders who let us down. Scriptures interpreted to animate a compassionate global faith and interpretations used violently to shame and dehumanize. This leaves many adults in our community still working through their own history of growing up in the church while struggling to know how to offer something more life-giving, formative, and inviting to our children and youth. I think these are tensions that I imagine most of us who participate in families and who are trying to pass some understanding or experience of the goodness that we have experienced in Christian community find ourselves wrestling with because we know there's so much else there that we've experienced too. And I think even if you don't find yourself in that kind of stage, you still are find yourself wrestling with what does it look like to move forward and, and how do I get some handles on this? And so one of the things as I was thinking through this, because Jesus is quoting scripture and, and pointing to God, and th I think in ways that are life-giving, but I think for some of us might also feel like there is some level of perhaps trauma or at least some landmines around some of those things too, accessing God through prayer or through scripture or through community. And so I wanted to look through the lens of our values. How might Vox values renew our practices, our spiritual understanding? We have artistry, which invites us to live out the image of God by engaging creatively and communally. We have a posture that is humbly accepting both the messiness and the majesty of our own humanity as well as others. And at least for me, that seems like something that's going to take a lifetime. 
empathy, which is creating space to listen and feel and be with people who are different, both wanting to hear from those who have been marginalized while not dehumanizing those who are the marginalizers. And that also seems like really intentional and lifelong work. There's this participation that we are co-creators rather than seeking to be celebrity-driven or personality-driven or just having one or two voices as the central uh, apex of what it means for us to be community together. There is peculiarity, which is this radical love for ourselves, for our enemies, and for the entire world. There is this mystery, which invites us to join our desire to love an infinite God with our limitations, including even our doubts and our uncertainties. And so I just invite us, as we enter this Lenten season and consider our relationship with power and perhaps our relationship to spiritual practices that might help us to reflect on our relationship to power and to ourselves and to God and to one another, that these might be ways that we can find new life breathed into practices that perhaps at times have felt harmful to us. Our passage continues. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, God will command angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I've already talked a little bit about perhaps the bread and circus nature of the way this temptation might relate to the previous one. So what I want to focus on here is that very last line, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. And what we see in that part of Deuteronomy is this reflection on the Hebrew people's time post-enslavement, but not yet into uh, a land of security and well-being, uh, and the ways that they failed when they were tested, that there was, they found themselves hungry, and they did not believe that God was going to do anything or care about them. They found themselves thirsting, and they doubted God's presence to them. Uh, they knew that Moses had gone up to some mountain and was taking a really long time, and they needed a God immediately, and so they crafted this golden image. As one person sort of said, we just kind of threw the gold into the fire and like out leaped this calf. I don't know what to tell you. You know, hook them horns. And uh, there were ways historically, even though this was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior that the Hebrew people have failed. And what many people see in all three of these testings or temptations is Jesus going into the wilderness like his ancestors before him, encountering the place of pain and failure and injustice that collectively his people had experienced and offering repair, offering healing. Jesus didn't say, oh, this, this happened hundreds of years ago, and I never did that. I wasn't a part of those people that made the golden calf. I wasn't one who complained when there wasn't any bread to eat. Jesus sees himself connected to a history and to a people and to a tradition. 
And he is going back and showing us what it looks like to be repairers of that and in that. Our next way that empire entices but love liberates is around engaging our past. Will we paper over pain or will we repair the wrong? A few weeks ago, I had the joy of preaching at UBC Waco, a community that I've belonged to and that is sort of a sister church uh, with us. And I was sharing and wanted to talk about um, Jesse Washington, who was this young man who was lynched in the early 20th century uh, in front of 15,000 people who came in. And this is like in 1917, like a long time ago, 15,000 people came to sort of partake uh, of this terrible thing. But I wanted it to be a moment of hope. And I thought that I had heard that though in my entire almost decade in Waco, no, there had never been anything to mark this uh, atrocity. I thought I heard that the city of Waco is doing something about it finally. And so I was like, I'm going to tell this story and talk about the ways that I've been disappointed with Waco my entire time being there, that we would not even acknowledge this thing, this thing that W.E.B. Du Bois, as he was helping to found the NAACP, used as a rallying cry nationally to put a spotlight on lynching. Uh, and yet you wouldn't know that if you were in the city of Waco, would not know any of that history. Um, I was excited to finally have like a win for the city of Waco, and yet as I Googled, I couldn't find anything about what I thought I had heard they were doing. And I was so convinced that they were doing it that I even went around the courthouse. Um, like I was like, there's got to be something here. I'm going to do this. This is going to be my happy illustration. And I could not find anything. So in that sermon, it was just still kind of another one as well, Waco, we still got a lot of work to do uh, in truth telling and acknowledging our past and yet, and the sermon ended, that was it for there. Immediately after my sermon, someone came up and said, well, did you know that literally today, in just a few hours, in front of the city hall, they're going to be unveiling the marker that the city has been working on to this? I said, no, and I wish I had known that like an hour ago. <laughs> but, you know, could have been a much more upbeat sermon. Uh, <laughs> you know, but instead I had... The joy, because I was there on the day that it was happening, that it was being unveiled, I decided to stick around Waco for a few hours more so I could be with this community, many who had been uh, working tirelessly to try to get this moment. And there was a beautiful spirit of both lament and celebration of this important pain in Waco's past, finally having a common acknowledgement. And everyone was clear this didn't mean that somehow racial injustice had left Waco or McLennan County or Texas. But everyone was also clear that this was an important first step. In verse 8, we read again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Empire pretends an authority that it doesn't have, right? It, here the devil is saying, I've got all this and it's mine to give to you. Uh, empire still does this when it comes to the land of indigenous people, when it comes to people's claim to be able to self-govern and to remain rooted to ancestral lands. Empire often sees that as of little importance. Jesus will ultimately overcome 
evil's machinations through nonviolent, forgiving, radical love. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, remind us that truly all authority has been given to him, to beloved community, not to empire. But that is further in the story. Chadwick Boseman, before he passed, acknowledged uh, on when he was being interviewed that uh, the Wakanda Forever sign was something that people were increasingly everywhere he went wanting him to do over and over again. And so the interviewers knew that and they were sort of teasing him and asking him to do it. And he's like, I'm not tap dancing. And it wasn't, as this is Chad War Bozeman talking, that I was doing the salute. It was a salute. It was that people were like, do that Wakanda thing. And I was like, nah, man, it's, it's always cool because I'll be just walking by somewhere and people just go, do the Wakanda salute. And just like that, it's like giving somebody a head nod. That's it. It's the same thing. You see, Chadwick Boseman acknowledged that a sign that initially held great cultural power and liberation became pretty performative and that he even felt that the whole world was demanding him like some sort of minstrel or tap dancer to perform on cue. And he did not want the Wakanda Forever salute or his life to be corrupted in that way. But empire always tries to corrupt the ways and means of liberation. And yet, Chadwick Boseman didn't give up on it. He's still saying, but when I'm just walking the streets and I see someone do it, I kind of give him a head nod. I know like, okay, you get it. You're, you're not about trying to turn this into something performative. It's just an acknowledgement that we are collectively together in this struggle. The final way that empire entices and that love liberates is through exercising power. Will we use power to take care of our own solely or rather to build beloved community? Will we use it primarily for our own comfort and the comfort of those closest to us? Or will we use it to build a more just and loving community and world? Because I think... When it comes to empire and its enticements, it's never going to say we don't believe in truth, justice, and the American way. Uh, empire is all about those things, but it's about getting us to pursue those things in self-centered ways, in ways that leave people and communities behind, in ways that prioritize our own privilege at the expense of other people. And it is that kind of discernment of the spirits that we are invited into not only during Lent, but for our entire communal journey together. Finally, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve God only. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Jesus connects back, not to the vision of empire, but to a vision of a God who is truly worthy of aligning our lives with our communities with and says that is what we will serve. That is what we will offer our utmost towards. That is where we will prioritize because there is life for every person. There the image of God is honored and can flourish in every human being. And so the devil leaves and then suddenly angels come and wait on him. Jesus is tired and famished and has many needs that I'm sure he needed to acknowledge and that the angels took care of. Will we allow ourselves space to heal and refresh 
and receive aid? Will we be open to opportunities where we can be such a representative of God to others? Jalen Levingston is an accomplished director, storyteller, uh, and particularly in developing theatrical plays and musicals. And he says, for every moment I feel myself sleeping, slipping into the deep waters of fear and hopelessness, of depression and anxiety, my community reminds me that I am not alone. You can create worlds with people where you offer grace to your demons and dance with your brokenness, with hope at the center of it all. He then asks, what stories are you telling? Who are you, willing to who are you inviting to experience them? Where is your theater? We all can harness the power of the artists to world build because that power is the very nature of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. So in that spirit, I want to end our time in a communal prayer. I will pray aloud, and this is one that's written by Levinston. I will pray aloud the words in white and invite you to respond with the words in yellow. We are made in the likeness of eternal creativity. Another world is possible and on its way. Its insistence moves us into being and imagines for us worlds beyond our hopelessness. Another world is possible and on its way. We are made to collaborate with those around us, to build deeper connection and sustainability around new ways of doing life together. Another world is possible and on its way. We are making space in our world for doubt and uncertainty by calling out fear and isolationism. Another world is possible and on its way. This is the truth about us. It always has been and always will be. A new world is both here and around. We will wait for it, usher it, greet it as a hopeful people. 